Hello and welcome everybody to the Mary Trump Show. And today my guest is Tim Miller, an MSNBC analyst, writer at large at the Bulwark, host of Not My Party on Snapchat, and as of yesterday, author of the new book, Why We Did It. Tim, it's so good to meet you. I, I kind of can't believe we haven't met yet. How are you? Mary, I can't either. You know, they say that we have this never Trump cabal that we're all meeting at various cocktail parties. I guess I'm not getting invited to them. Uh, I don't know how we haven't met, but uh, I, would, I would think that we are both pretty high in the cabal were it to exist. So I'm so excited yeah. to finally do this. Uh, me too. And I particularly after the Supreme <laughs> the Supreme Court basically taking a hatchet to American democracy <laughs> and what's been going on um, in the hearings, the January 6th Select Committee hearings, as well as your for former party's um, reactions, lack thereof, uh, and trying to position themselves as separate from everything the committee is uncovering. Uh, first of all, I, I'm really curious. I, I wish I had had time to read your book, but again, it just came out yesterday. So uh, I usually try to be prepared, but I'm okay. very much looking forward to it because I've, I'm always really curious about that evolution, um, yeah. that political evolution because, and I don't, I don't mean this to be disrespectful at all. It's no, just please. That, you know, give I've me the business. A, I've been a liberal all my life, and you know, some people may not understand why. So I was like, I've never quite understood why people were Republicans in the first place. So yeah, sure. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that journey, and um, which I, your book is about, and what happened. What was the turning point? Was it this sudden thing or was it this slow building wave yeah. of horror? Well, look, everybody, and I say this to all my former friends and colleagues who who, who haven't jumped ship, I, I always say, look, everybody who gets into politics in the beginning, there's like a level of earnestness, right? Or you mm -hmm. care about politics. You're drawn to it for a reason. Very few people just kind of accidentally fall into politics, right? right. And, and so, I, you know, as a young person, I was... I, I tended to be conservative, and I was more of a moderate Republican. I was always a moderate Republican. I worked for John Huntsman. Like, that was my mm -hmm. type of Republican. Uh, you know, my colleagues on campaigns used to joke back in the aughts that I was a Lincoln Chafee Republican. <laughs> like, it was barely a Republican at all. So I was always a moderate, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I, I bought into the you know, personal liberty side of things. I bought into the, uh, you know, free market side of things. I'm not, you know, everybody's influenced by their family. <laughs> we mm -hmm. get into that with you in a second. But my father was, uh, you know, a self-made, you know, man. And I, I kind of really, uh, you know, I think that that impacted my view of, of how, how the government should be involved in, in taking from his, you know, success. Um, and, you know, foreign policy-wise, you know, I found myself more on the, you know, pro-America, um, neocon, if you will, side of things. So I, you know, I ended up having some doubts about Iraq. And so that, that's why I was drawn to the party. But like I said, I was a moderate. I think that what I get into in the book is 
the shameful part of all this, I, I have that covers most of my peers, right? Like most of my mm-hmm. peers who who got into politics came up in the West Wing era. We were all kind of center right, moderate Republicans who were drawn to the the drama, drawn to the game, drawn to the sport of it. Um, you know, every, I, I didn't know a ton of people who were you know hardline social conservatives or hardline anti-immigrant nationalists. You know, right. I, you know, many of us liked you know, Obama kind of at a personal level. And, you know, had had we been born four years later, might have worked for Obama instead. You know what I mean? Like that, right. that this is where we were. Like we were, we were, you know, wearing one jersey. The other people in town were in the other jersey. My friends were Democrats. We'd attack each other on Twitter. You know, Liz Smith is Pete Buttigieg's person. Like we used to have mm-hmm. kind of a performative fight back and forth because like the differences with us are pretty small. Like we had differences, right. but they're pretty small. Um, and so I look back on that and, you know, Palin was the first, and, and so I talk about this in the book and, 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 and I think this is in, uh, you know, in some ways I, I, the book is actually harder on people like me than it is the actual bigots and true believers, because it's like, look, you know, we just excused it. You know, we, yeah. we compartmentalized it. You know, we're like the candidates that we are working for are the good ones, you know, uh, uh, the Sarah Palin thing. Like we saw, all the, I saw all this happening back in 2008. I saw it and I knew it was coming. And I just, I just, uh, because I was so enamored with the horse race and the sport of it, I put it in a box in my brain and, and so, I, I mean, this is, you know, a pox on my house, but, um, but, but that's, that's, that's kind of how it happened. That's the, that's one of the interesting points here is how all of us do this. We, if we're wrong, we don't like to admit it. So we just would rather keep being wrong and not listen to information that contradicts us. Uh, if we're part of something and then sort of around the edges, bad stuff starts happening, we put on our blinders. Um, everybody does that. And especially, since um, parties, uh, political parties, are inherited in the same way religions are, in a way. Uh, There was a study done that showed that um, you're more likely to get divorced than you are to change your political party. So it's it's deeply ingrained. And deeply, and and just two quick points on that. And the center, the central, like if my book is about anything, you know, besides politics, it's about these stories that we tell ourselves to comfort us, to avoid us from having to, to confront, you know, un, unappealing facts, right? Like that's what it's about. It's about how we lie yeah. to ourselves, you know, and, and we, we do the convenient thing, you know, rather than saying, oh man, like I actually need to do the hard thing here. Like the hard thing here would be to say, you know, no, this is against my integrity or no, I need to kind of, you know, what my, what the things that are going on in my social group is not, you know, um, uh, uh, is unethical or immoral. Those, those things are, it's much easier to tell it to, you know, the old George Bush line, so you about Bush, this is a good line, was, you know, we, we judge ourselves by our best intentions and our enemies by our worst examples. And like, that's kind of what this book yeah. is about, right? Like you, you just look yeah. at yourself and, and you don't actually judge, you know, the reality. And so, you know, I think that's one element of it. And the other thing is as a gay, as a gay man, I wrote a lot about identity and coming, kind of coming out of the closet. And a lot of this for me, leaving the party was, there were some parallels between coming out of the closet, right? Like you have mm-hmm. this identity of yourself. Then this goes to your point about divorce and how rare it is. I'm a Republican. This is particularly true in DC. It's true throughout the country, but like I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. And that defines me. And it's as much a part of me, I think particularly for white people, not, not for people of color, but for white people, right. it's like, it's as much a part of me as my race and my religion. Like I'm a white Catholic, you know, Republican Denver Broncos fan. Like those are the things that define me, right? And so if I change that, then the other people in my life start to look at me differently. 
right? They're like, you know, you yeah. were it, so it becomes hard. It's like, oh man, if I come out of the closet as a Hillary voter, what's my dad gonna think? What's my grandma gonna think? What are my friends gonna think? Uh, my my LinkedIn bio says Reagan on it. I'm gonna have to change that, right? Like, it's harder than than people think. I, it shouldn't have been hard because you know it was so monstrous what happened in 2016, but. Um, but I think that people under don't appreciate, particularly non-political people, like don't appreciate how ingrained that is in our culture in in Washington and with and, and with highly engaged political people. And I think that that is one of the reasons why so many of my my friends kept going along with this. You you make a really good point about um, the different kinds of Republicans there used to be. Uh, there yeah. there was a I I think a lot of the people um, you're much younger than I am, but um, a lot of people in the 80s, 90s, we who were Republicans would be Democrats now, probably. Right. Um, you know, Obama probably would have been a Republican in the early 80s, uh, <laughs> you know, because I think um, a lot of... Older Obama, certainly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, that's not the case. I think that the Republican Party is now a monolith. Um, what do you think, because this is the... This is what I find very curious. A lot of people in your position decided to stay, dig in, and go to the dark side. You reference Elise Stefanik, uh, and you know she's one of one of many. Like, what what about this made some people want to stay? Because, as you said, it was so horrifically bad in 2016 that it gave you guys an out to make it. It was the reasonable yeah. thing to do was to leave the party. Right. Um, and yet a lot of people stayed. Almost everybody stayed. And I can put on the, yeah. I, in, in D.C., uh, you know, obviously there were yeah. a lot of people in, around the country who, who bailed. But um, I could count on two hands, like the people well, that, that really, you know, did the right thing. Um, I, Elise is, 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 I think, a particular example. I, I think it's a little bit different for different people. There are a couple different, mm-hmm. you know, ty- types that I, I, that I talk about. And, and one of them is just, you know, straight ambition, right, and career ambition. I, I don't think that, you know, people who have come to politics more recently who aren't, like, huge political nerds uh, might not realize. Elisa's campaign in 2014, she ran, you know, like what the dream campaign would have been for me you know, for, for a candidate. It was like, I'm pro-immigrant. I'm pro-gay. I believe climate change is a problem and we need to deal with it. You know, um, but I also, you know, support a more aggressive foreign policy, right? This was, that was what we need to be compassionate and welcoming. That was her campaign. She was made on the front edge of that in 2014. I know. And so, and I, so I interviewed for this book. I tried to interview her. She sent me an email that said, I see, I see your Twitter feed. So I don't think we need to, I don't want to do this. I was like, okay, fair enough, Elise. Um, But I interviewed all the people that were on the campaign with her, her friends. We have a ton of mutual friends. We worked together in 2012 and you know, they all make excuses for it and say, well, this is what our voters want. It's like, well, that's not really true. Actually. I, you know, there've been other, that she could, um, have have maintained, I, I think, kept winning primaries up there, but just not been as powerful, right? And so, what she, right. what, what it want, this was not for her a response to voters. That what that is the case for certain candidates. For her, this was, she's so ambitious that that, that she, you know, managed to just put all of those past views aside and say, I'm going to take out Liz Cheney. You know, I'm going to be the Speaker of the House. And I think that Lily Stefanik will be on the short list for the VP, uh, um, especially if it's Trump next time, maybe if it's DeSantis. Um, And so 
uh, it's paid off for. And so I, I think that is another reason you, why you keep doing it, right? Like why, why you stay in, there's a little bit of a mob element to it, right? You can't, you know, um, uh, you keep getting rewarded. So, I, I mean, I think she's a really extreme example. There are a lot of other people that it's more mild, right? It's just inertia, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, this is my career. I'm doing this. What else am I supposed to do? And they'd call me and we'd have a drink and I'd make suggestions to them. And you know, they'd say, yeah, I don't know. And then mumble something and then keep going the next day. So, um, you know, I, I think that there are different reasons and people have different addictions, but um, but I, it is it was they were they're so powerful. These rationalizations are so powerful, and that's I think yeah. is the big surprising thing for me. I, I would have expected more people to bail. You know, the thing that surprises me is that, and this is this is my prejudice, but sure, I don't think you can be a decent human being and be an elected official in the Republican Party anymore, and. It strikes me that, okay, in the Senate, almost 100% of the time, it's 50 votes. It's a 50-vote block. In the House, a tiny handful of Republicans will vote uh, with Democrats. So it is almost the entirety of the party. And I get hung up on, is it, how is it possible that that many people suddenly just became awful? <laughs> Is it characterological or did they change because circumstances changed them? I think that there's both happening. Some people changed. I think that some people became radicalized. When I was writing the book, one of the things that shocked me, Mary, and I, this was like the thing that caught me the most off guard, was, I, I, again, I was interviewing all people who you would have thought might might have a conscience and do the right thing, right? I didn't go interview Stephen Miller. Right? I don't like that Stephen Miller's that interesting, right? Uh, you know no, what was happening people. here. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and I, was, I was trying to interview people who are, who are human, who are three-dimensional or complicated, people that have a shadow sign and a good sign and want and, and aspire to be good people. And, and they have just convinced, been convinced themselves. Some of them have been brainwashed by Fox and TV, and some of them, I think, it just leads to personal animus. They've convinced themselves that that the the really bad people out there are on the left. And they would rant people out there, people that I were otherwise kind of gentle, good people. I'd start interviewing them and we'd get deeper and deeper. And you know, we'd be on backgrounds, they knew their name wouldn't be on it, and they'd start to get riled up and they'd be like, in the Lincoln Project and MSM and the reporters that are all out to get us. And you know, the we have to drink out of paper straws now. And I'm like, why well, I'm like, why are you so mad about this? You know, you're a successful, you know, privileged white senator or staffer or house member or c- consultant who's making money. Like, why, why I don't understand why they're so upset. But I, I think that, you know, some of that is we need to get a you know psych- psychologist in there. Some of it is that they know that they're guilty. And so, you know, you lash out at, at the other side. And some of it is, I think, just these, these personal, um, what's the word? Annoyance, animus, you know, just like, yeah. they're just, they're so, it's like the liberals in their life bother them so much, the sanctimony, you know, the, the per- perceived sanctimony yeah. uh, that, that they, that they've been radicalized. And, and so I, I think that was the most surprising thing, the, you know, people that I thought would be reasonable. Um, and I think that's what leads to things like, look, you even had retiring senators, even the supposedly good senators like Rob Portman, people who are supposed to know better, they didn't convict Right, like right. they could, and you know, when they had no political, he was retiring, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like that. You can't blame that on doing what your voters wanted. Um, you know, he had right. an opportunity, and there were a handful that that were that fit that bill. 
Well, I guess there are a lot of boards he wants to sit on or something. Um, and but I think that is been, part of it. Wouldn't he have been more, better suited? Uh, you know, couldn't uh, the to Fortune 50, like, wouldn't wouldn't he have been welcomed as a hero, as the person that convicted Donald Trump? I, I don't know. I, anyway, I yeah. don't know. That's what I would pitch people. I'd like, oh, they'd be like, well, Tim, right. we can't, you can't do this. You can't get away. I was like, are you sure? Have you tried? I, it might work out for you, actually. I, look at Cassidy Hutchinson yesterday, or, um, you know, like, that's right. I, I, don't you think her life is going to be a lot better now that she acted with integrity? I mean, as long as she doesn't get killed by a crazy. Well, mega, I was going to say it might be a little uh, rocky scary for a while. Yeah, um, yeah. But in the long term, don't you think she's going to feel better be about her choices, be happier, be able to live <laughs> exactly. with herself, be welcomed into? Uh, aren't doors going to open for her? Couldn't like that, that option was available to so many people who just didn't take it. And Tim, that's one of the other things about this. Um, strange phenomenon uh, that I have difficulty wrapping my head around. Um, as you said, there are people who probably would have been hailed as heroes if they had stepped up and convicted him or, you know, voted against the Muslim ban or voted against torturing children. But then there's the, the party as a whole. And I've written about this because I'm still trying to figure it out. There have been so many off-ramps. All they had to do after the 2020 election started with Mitch McConnell to say, he lost, move on. And yet, here we are. Yeah, and that's the most, that's the biggest off-ramp that I, that I, I still, I guess I do understand. I was about to say I don't understand. I, I can't comprehend it. I do understand it. Uh, they, they could have convicted him and just moved on to Ron DeSantis. Right now, that wouldn't have brought people like me back to the party. Ron DeSantis right. is not in many bad. I mean, he's, I guess, marginally better because he doesn't have like the personal psychological issues, uh, all of them at least, um, that the former president does. But, um, uh, you know, uh, the, at least they could have like slept at night, right? And like convicted him and said, you know, this guy honestly tried to end our democracy. And, and it was so obvious. Let's convict him, move forward. You know, and and they could have still had their cake and eaten it too, right? Like I don't think it was even that risky of a vote, right? And there there were so many other and that opportunity is available to all of them now, right now. They could say, look, we cut a deal with the devil, we got Roe, we overturned Roe. Now let's move on to Ron DeSantis. That's still available, but they don't do it. And the answer, the best answer I can come to is that for almost all of these people, I think there's some that are ideological, you know, Lee motivated, and and some that are, but but for the vast majority, the thing that drives them is this grievance against the left and the liberals and us and the people that are calling them out. And so if your top priority in politics is winning the game and, and owning the libs, okay, then, the, then the, you can't admit that they were right about Donald Trump, right? So to move on to Ron DeSantis, you have to admit that Mary and Tim were actually right about Donald Trump. Like we gotta, you know what I mean? They're at some level, you have to say, we have to move yeah. on from this guy because he's insane. And they, they can't bring themselves to do that, right? Like, because that goes against the whole, you know, fundamental reason why they made this bargain in the first place. Uh, and and, and I, so I think that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a psychological weakness and, and an unwillingness to, to admit, um, you know, what is obvious, I, I think that is the reason they haven't taken these offerings. Yeah, and the vilifying of people on the left has been going on for a very long time. But I think the grievance <laughs> has uh, hit a high watermark. And that's because of Donald, because he's the most aggrieved person I've ever met in my life. And it's sort of um, it, it's sort of a, a character trait of 
elected Republicans now. You have to be aggrieved and angry all the time. Um, and also you have to make sure that anything you do is to own the libs, even if it's going to destroy the lives of your constituents. Um, so I want to ask you about the other kinds of shifts we've seen. The Supreme Court in the last two weeks has um, total, not quite totally, but come close to obliterating the Establishment Clause. Um, they have expanded gun rights, uh, even in states where we want gun safety laws on the books because, you know, we're densely populated, like New York City. Uh, they have rendered women across the country second-class citizens. They've essentially divided the country um, about in half because now we're this checkerboard. Some women have rights here. They don't have them in the state next to them. So... And there are many more examples that just exemplify this court's cruelty and complete lack of uh, integrity. Um, it seems that what, what we have here is the exact opposite of what a Republican would have uh, wanted 10, 15, 20 years ago. That, it's head spinning. Yeah, and there's a lot there. And I think that, of course, you know, when I was doing Republican campaigns, right, that there was, you know, this notion that we don't want to legislate from the bench, right? We don't want activist judges. We don't want judges. Like That was the whole line, right? Yeah. Um, well, here we are. I think it was we didn't want liberal activist judges, um, uh, uh, which, you know, I think has been revealed, the revealed preference. Uh, and and I think that there's this small C conservatism, you know, this sense of, you know, kind of Oakshadian conservatism, right? Which is we want, we don't want to change societies dramatically, right? Like we want, you know, there, there's this, it's, it's like about prudence. <laughs> this is like George H.W. Bush style conservatism, right? Like we want to be prudent, right? It's not, uh, you know, we want to protect things and preserve things. So if we make changes, they should be small changes. And like there's, there's some, that is good for the societal, you know, fabric, right? Yeah. I, I was always kind of drawn to that a little bit. I, you know, and there's some, always some, there is also benefit to radical change in certain times. Um, you know, gay marriage was radical change that really benefited me, but I, I got that argument, right? This is, there's, that's all out the window, right? Like all that small C conservatism. They're, they're, they don't even yeah. pretend like that is a, a value that is held anymore. And, and I think that, um, that's reflected in where this, where this court has gone. Um, and I think that's particularly true on the gun, you know, the gun issue. And obviously you listed a bunch of them, but just, just as one example, right, with New York, this was a like a 150-year-old law. I'm going from memory now. And it was like a really old yeah. law. Like it wasn't like a new law that got challenged. I, I, you know, the, New York had had this law that was a state's rights thing. It had been enshrined. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it did not prevent people from having a weapon. It just created, you know, uh, barriers, um, you know, reasonable uh, restrictions. I think that was a really revealing, you know, overturn, um, you know, it paired with Roe, you know, where, where Roberts kind of offered this middle ground, right? Like well, Roberts offered this middle ground, which I'm sure, you know, a lot of uh, pro-choice folks would have still been really upset about and, and would have limited rights, of course. But but the Roberts proposal, right, was this more what, what you would have thought Republicans would have been for in, in, a, in a bygone era. And it, what's so really maddening about it, too, is that they used exactly opposite <laughs> reasons. Rationales for the two. Um, for, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's 
incredible what what they're going to get away with uh, unless somebody starts playing hardball. Have you ever had an acne outbreak come at the worst possible time? I know my daughter, when she was a teenager, did, and we've all had struggles with our skin. That's why I'm really excited to partner with Apostrophe, uh, which is the sponsor of this episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. And at Apostrophe, an expert dermatology team will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history, snap a few selfies, and a board-certified dermatologist will create your initial customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne, chest, back, everywhere else. They treat breakouts from head to toe. Their user experience is amazing, and you'll even love the unbox it, knowing your skin will look fantastic. All without having to go into a pharmacy or wait in line to get your treatments. We have a special deal for our audience. Uh, you can save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash Mary when you use my code Mary. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash Mary and click begin visit. Then use my code Mary at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash Mary and use that code Mary to get your first dermatologist crafted Treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. So it is, and then of course there's the, the anti-intellectualism, the anti-science element. And, you know, I don't think I've paid, I, I certainly haven't paid as close attention to politics as I have been in the last few years. But I don't remember where that started happening, you know, especially since we have practically every Republican center went to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, or Oxford. <laughs> so. yeah. Well, you know, there's the old Buckley line, and there's always been an anti-elite strain within the party, right? There's the old William F. Buckley line about how I'd rather be ruled by the first 10 names in the phone book and the Harvard faculty. I'm getting that a little bit wrong. The Harvard faculty lounge, but, you know, you know saying I'd rather you know, be ruled by a common, random common man than the Harvard faculty lounge. So, so like, that, that, this anti, you know, campus conservatism has, has been, you know, long and great. I mean, like, it goes back to Dinesh, and I don't know if you know this, yeah. Dinesh and Laura Ingram, like, are on Dartmouth campus yeah. and, you know, instigating, yeah. right? Um, so this goes way, so that, but, but so what, what, what is new, I think, is this, you know, and you can see how this happens, where, okay, well, if the Ivy Leaguers are bad, okay, and if it's the elites that are bad, then the media is out for the bad, that means that the scientists might also be bad, right? Like all smart people might be bad, right? And so, you know, you you can see how this gets drug in. And, and, yeah. uh, and you know, I, I just, it's been shocking. I mean, what has happened in the last year, I look at some of my friends, so I was like, we're anti-vaccine now? 
you know, you don't believe that the earth is warming. I mean, look, I, I do plenty. I, there's plenty of mea culpa in my book. And in 08, what McCain did with Palin was obviously a, just a massive error. That said, John McCain ran in 2008 on a platform of, of he was going to, he supported cap and trade. Like that was, that was going to be his big right. thing if he had won. Like he, he wanted right. to work with the Democrats to do a cap and trade thing to deal with climate. That was, that was only 14 years ago, you know, that the Republican presidential candidate, uh, you know, was very serious about dealing with climate. So I, that part has unraveled quickly. And I think that it's been driven in large part by Fox and these sort of media outlets and then, and then, Trump, uh, you know, that, that, that now the anti-elite part is so central that that has to now apply not just to the Harvard faculty lounge, but to, you know, the scientists that are trying to save us from a deadly disease. Yeah, it's that part is stunning to me because it's me very similar to uh, the gun issue. I was talking to Ruth Ben-Giad about this a while ago. Um, the, the thing with COVID is that they are putting themselves, their children, their loved ones at risk. And she said, you can you can find the origin of that sort of devaluation of human life in the gun culture. And it's true. I mean, they're still willing to, their kids go to schools, you know. Yeah. They all go to churches or Walmart or whatever. So they're all equally at risk and don't want to do anything about it. it it's still, I mean, I do, as you said, I understand it, but I don't quite. <laughs> yeah, um, my husband is uh, from West Virginia, rural West Virginia, and so I, I went back there um, for a funeral, not COVID-related funeral, during um, during the pandemic. And uh, but I, I just the stories that I was hearing. You know, it's a small town. This was really this was really hard. It was a hard one for me to sink in. You know, because I get it in the abstract. Right, that uh, like I'm mad at the elites. I'm mad at you know. I don't trust this vaccine. I don't trust you know Dr. Fauci. I get that in the abstract, but you know you're in the small town, and and I'm I'm, I'm it's been a little while, so I'm blanking. I forget if it was the football coach or the baseball coach, but like a prominent sp- like high school sports coach, family, big family. You know, it's the kind of town where everybody knows everybody. You mm-hmm. know, had been anti-vax. This was after the vaccine and died. And, you know, I said to my husband's dad, who's my father-in-law, who's a doctor, I was like, did, was, there a, was there a rush on vaccines after that? Like, that had to have been a wake-up call to everybody. And he said, for one or two days. He's like, for one or two days, we had a few more people than we did usually. And then it went away. And like, that is the part for me that is just, I, I still can't really wrap my, wrap my mind around. And I think it shows how powerful these that propaganda is and these yeah. rationalizations that I write about are, right? That the, like even in the face of death, I, I put this just a uh, quick aside that is related in the book. I write about Chris Christie. Donald almost right. killed Chris Christie. I mean, yes. literally almost killed him uh, by giving him, didn't tell him that he had COVID, gave it to him. Christie's obviously has some comorbidities. And, and Christie's in the hospital, says that Donald calls him and says, and says, you're not going to blame this on me, are you? He doesn't call him to like send him a suit, you know, send him a, something. He calls him to be like, you're not going to blame this on me. Christy gets out of the hospital and then campaigns with him. I'm like, what are right? you doing? He killed you. He almost killed you. You were on death's door. Uh, and, 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 but that just shows like how yeah. these sorts of, anyway, how powerful it is. Well, I think part of it on the individual level, uh, you know, just American citizens, I, I'm with you. I know people who had very terrifyingly bad cases of COVID, have long COVID now, still haven't been vaccinated, got COVID again. 
I, like, oh my God, fine, just stay away from me. <laughs> because I, I can't, the selfishness, first of all, is, is kind of mind-blowing. Yeah. But the lack of concern um, about their own lives is, is really, and these people, are, these are people who have children. It's, it's just unbelievable. And I live in New York. You know, you don't have to go to West Virginia uh, you know, that was on Long Island. You don't have to go to West yeah. Virginia no, to sure. find to find that kind of thing. And but with people like Christy, it just it's just gotta be raw power. And yeah. this is one of the things, especially as we uh, go through these January sixth committee hearings, that I've never understood, but it's becoming even more of a mystery how anybody could be afraid of Donald how anybody could look up to him or think that he's worth being loyal to. Uh, I know that is not the most important part of the hearings, but it does kind of make me question like what exactly we're dealing with. And the larger issue, um, and you mentioned Ron DeSantis, and I, I think that's, that's an, a very important thing to bookmark, my deepest concern right now about the hearings isn't if Donald gets off the hook or it's that the, the Republican Party and Republican Party leadership is going to use the hearing, these hearings and the, the, the conclusions drawn to say, hey, it was, it was the executive branch. It wasn't us. We're, we're fine now. And I think that, you know, Mitch McConnell on down are as responsible for this, if not more so. Do you, do you, are you worried about oh, that? Oh, yeah. I, I'm not worried. That, <laughs> at some level, so I, I know that, that some Democrats in my life don't don't like this. I, I do think that, that Donald is uniquely dangerous because he has just this shamelessness superpower that as, as, as much as I disagree, you know, and what DeSantis has done on the don't say, yeah, I, you know, I, we could go on and on about DeSantis. Right. But, but it takes a specially kind of warped mind to be able to uh, to be like I'm going to create this fake fraud, you know, and then and then pretend like I believe it for years, you know, and like keep it going. Right? I, you know, most humans, even bad people, you know, eventually like want to at least convince themselves that they're telling the truth. Like it's really hard, you know. You have to be especially kind of warped to be able to be like I know that this is not true, and I'm not only am I going to keep saying it, I'm going to convince millions of people that right. It's just so it's hard to imagine that somebody like DeSantis would do that. I hear some other bad traits. So, so at some level, I, I would welcome them moving on um, because I think it's kind of the difference between existentially bad and just kind of normal bad. Um, and so hmm. I, I'm not that worried about that, I, but I don't think that they're going to. And, and I do agree, by the way, um, that to, with the question of, and I don't know if voters will hold them this way. And I think that's what I'm more worried about. I don't think vol voters are going to hold the senators responsible, but there's no doubt that the senators are maybe not as responsible as Trump, but, but, but almost as, you almost know, I mean, as. They, yeah, the, the January 5th, I always go back to that, that Georgia runoff on January 5th with Leffler and Purdue, everyone endorsed Leffler and Purdue. They were running on a promise to overturn the election. That was the night before January 6th. Had Mitch McConnell, you know, Mitch McConnell had, and you said earlier, they had plenty of off ramps. They had an off ramp after November. You know, they could have said, don't come down to Georgia. You know, you lost. Yep. We're running these campaigns as we're going to be a check 
on Joe Biden. Joe Biden's the president. That's what these campaigns are going to be based on. And we need a check on Joe Biden. We need Mitch McConnell in the Senate. They could have run that campaign, the runoff. They didn't. They ran on this fake fraud nonsense. And yep. so that that was very directly tied to what happened the next day. You know, di- directly tied. Absolutely. Oh, I, I mean, the, the enormity of the things that contributed <laughs> To January yeah. 6th is, is kind of extraordinary. Uh, and, you know, it all seems to be fitting together quite nicely, uh, which yeah. makes it worse in some ways. Uh, I just want to push back a little bit uh, on DeSantis because no, I think he's more dangerous. I don't think he's going to try to overthrow the United States government. But yeah. I, th- I don't think whether the Republican Party rejects Donald or doesn't, whether they move on or not, I don't think anything changes ideologically. Um, and as you know, we talked about earlier, this court is hastening uh, the extremity of the of the um, the social uh, disruption. That's not even the best way to put it. I, they're basically destroying American democracy. But um, DeSantis, he's not visibly insane. <laughs> you know, right. he's he's not um, crude. And I, as far as I know, he doesn't throw hamburgers against the wall and yeah. uh, he doesn't tackle Secret Service agents. But um, that doesn't mean that that he won't be just as bad. Because, look, Donald wasn't responsible for any of his policies. He just did right. what he was told. And the difference is, I think... Uh, DeSantis is more ideological or is ideological because Donald's not right. at all. His ideology is I'm the only important person on the planet and, right. uh, you know, he's the best. But that putting it in a, a neater package, a more presentable package, and, um, you know, the other thing that worries me is that that it seems like the Republicans are setting up a situation in which a coup, this kind of coup wouldn't be necessary because of gerrymandering in the Electoral College yeah. and the Supreme Court. So I don't yeah, we I, have something to be concerned about? <clears throat> yes. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I'm not saying don't be concerned. Um, okay. What I'm <laughs> saying is uh, I, I just think that DeSantis is bad in different ways and in ways that make me uh, just normal concerned rather than existential concern. And just to let me explain, I, I, I really... Uh, this might sound like alarmism, but I, I just don't know that that the democracy could survive a Trump victory over next time. Like I, no. I just I don't think I, I just don't know that it could. I, I think that the I think the fab, I mean I couldn't imagine if he's on the ballot. It's hard to imagine uh, either situation where there's not violence and and afterwards. I, I just I, I think that I think that it's a very and if he gets back in. The idea of who would be around him the next oh, time—I mean, I'm like, I just it, so over. yeah. So I so for me, it's just like that is a catastrophic scenario that we need to do any everything we can possibly to prevent. DeSantis, you know, is bad in different ways, right? I agree with you because he's presentable, he's more electable uh, because I think he's better at putting his own people in there. You know that that you can he'd be more effective at doing some nefarious things. I, I, my old boss Jeb even kind of likes him, which which just bl- horrifies me and blows my mind away. But that shows, like, there are a lot of Jebs out there. Jeb didn't vote for Trump, right? So there are a lot right, of people right. like that that would vote for DeSantis. Um, and 
so obviously, I mean, I find his what he's done with the with the uh, schools in Florida to just be absolutely unconscionable. Um, uh, you know, his presentation. I don't, there's like there's almost nothing I like about Ron DeSantis, right? Right. right. And so, um, I, you know, I, that that was all. I was just trying to draw draw a distinction uh, between. I, I, for me, I just think if you're calculating getting rid of moving Donald off the stage permanently is a net win. Um, and then, Absolutely. you know, we can deal with the next problem later. Yeah. Although I'm quite, I'm, I'm worried about 2022 because I think if, if the Democrats lose the house, then that does inch us closer to losing democracy because the, the hearings will be about a, a laptop and Benghazi. Right. Uh, that's 24. Yeah. Seven. You know, I uh, said on Twitter yeah. yesterday, I was like, the, keeping the people behind the House Judiciary Committee Twitter feed from having a subpoena power is as good a reason to vote for Democrats as any policy issue next year. I mean, those, like these people are insane. Those and, and tweets to, yesterday were unhinged. Yeah, and the and idea that those people would have subpoena power, I mean, like, it's Jim like Jordan? the government wouldn't do anything. Um, so, yeah. I, no, I, yeah, um, I, that's that's extreme. And, and, this, and this slate, by the way, the 2022 Republican slate, you know, we've talked about all this, and and a lot of times there's this desire to kind of dull, like all Republicans are bad, right? Which is which I, which I understand that that mindset, uh, but but you know there are different gradations of bad, and the mm. and the Republican candidates that are up this time make the Tea Party class from 2010, you know, look like John McCain by comparison. I mean, like this this class is of, is of lunatics at the House level, at the Secretary of State level, at yeah. the Senate level. I, I mean, I, I just don't think that people appreciate just how radical the the next batch of Republicans, and if there's a wave, like the the types of Republicans that would hold office from Secretary of State all the way up to Senate, um, very alarming. The old men, you know, we we, we made we made fun of Rob Portman at the start, plenty to make fun of with Rob Portman, but uh, you know, the difference between Rob Portman and JD Vance is. Markets. I mean, it's a you know, yeah. Rob. <laughs> it's like normal bad, existential bad, right? Um, yeah, and and I I don't ever want to alarm people for no reason, right. but right now the house is pretty much almost that already, uh, and you know, uh, imagine ten more Lauren Boberts or Marjorie Taylor Greens, which is what's or, which is what we're getting. It's exactly what we're getting, and. At that point, it seems impossible. Well, I don't know. It seems difficult to see a path uh, around that anytime in the near future. Yeah. I mean, uh, think about gun deal, for example. I, it only got this was this was the uh, most modest gun deal imaginable, right? Like, I mean, it barely did anything. Like, I was happy they did it. Good on Chris Murphy. God love him for mm-hmm. you know being willing to sit down with these assholes and have meat. But like, it was barely anything. Uh, and and only 14 Republicans in the whole House voted for it, and and I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. I think six of them are retiring, you know. So it's like, uh, you know, th- there's just nobody that's even you know. Uh, you don't have to be that excited about the infrastructure and the gun bills to to say, okay, this is what a normal government looks like. This is what we should do, you know. <laughs> we're we're fixing our roads and bridges. We're making modest reforms to gun reform after a mass shooting of children. Uh, that's. Uh, at least, you know, the bare minimum that a government should be doing, uh, the Republicans that voted for that are all on the way out the door. Yep. 
Yeah. So the ones that are coming in won't even do the bare minimum, right? It's like you don't have to praise Richard Burr and Rob Portman and whatever, uh, uh, you know, these uh, Upton and Michigan. You don't have to praise these guys for, for doing the bare minimum, but you can acknowledge that at least they did the bare minimum and they're about to be replaced by Lauren Boebert's. And that's a big, that is a meaningful difference. It's, it, it, even though um, they still vote badly most of the time, right. somehow it does matter um, right. that, you know, there's at least some level of seriousness and sobriety yeah. and some lines that won't be crossed. Yeah. And you know, in an emergency situation, you're like, I know we can get these seven guys to just pass right. this thing that we need to pass because something happened, right? Like those, yeah. the types of pe- those types of people are going away. Yeah, you know, Rob Portman is not going around calling Democrats pedophiles and groomers. Right, right. You know, so <laughs> we leave that up to uh, Jim Jordan and Ted Cruz Matt Gaetz is who should yeah. be in prison, but um, that's another another mystery. Um, I, as somebody who understands the Republicans, I'm always fascinated by people who've who've uh, had similar experiences. Um, because the difference between how Republicans fight and how Democrats fight, it must it must be demoralizing to you to, to see the, like this party that has a lot so much to offer, honestly, just not being able to punch its way out of a paperback. It is. It is kind of, and it's hilarious actually, almost in a sad way. I I, I think I mentioned <laughs> this in the book. I forget. I might hit the cutting room floor, but I was like. Before, even it goes back before our this this time. So the the Democratic dirty trickster, you know, in my when I was coming up was David Brock, who also used to be a oh, former yeah. Republican, wow. right? Like American right. Bridge, the guy that started the thing. So it's like it goes all yep. the way back to David Brock, up through all the Lincoln Project guys and me. And I, I, yeah, it is um it is frustrating. Uh, and and I don't I don't get it sometimes. I like I don't know what the Democrats are doing right now in the Senate, for example. You know, it's like, should, you know, in my Republican brain, it's always like tactic strategy. How can we wedge them on the other side? Yeah. Right. And so, and the right. Democrats are, it's, it's like coalition building. What's the right thing to do? There's a nice part about all that. Right. But I'm like, I was saying to someone just uh, earlier today, a Democrat, I said, why, why can't the Democrats put up a bill tomorrow that codifies Griswold or that, that gives all women who are raped the right to an abortion? Right and, and make the Republicans vote against that and then run ads on it and say all these Republicans just voted against a bill that would have protected women that were raped from having an, from ha- from being able to have a choice over their body and it's like well some of the groups might be bad if we if we do rape and we don't include this or that and I I, I get that it's like oh you know it might it might feel like we're we're gonna get criticized for that or you know we need to get all the stakeholders on board I'm like, I'm like what what are we doing here fascinating because from where I'm sitting, it seems to me that the biggest thing Democratic voters want is reassurance that the people they voted into office are fighting for them, not, you know, uh, trying to make common cause with fascists or get a coalition about something. I, I was speaking with Dahlia Lithwick and she had exactly the same idea. They make them vote on one piece of this every single day. Pull it, yeah. you know, you think it's totally cool for a 12-year-old girl who was raped by her father to be forced to give birth to that baby who is both her sister and her daughter. That make them yeah. vote. 
make uh, us. This is what they did on the immigrants, really quick. Just it's what Republicans yeah. did. They, they'd find a uh, someone that was killed by a, an undocumented immigrant, and then they'd That's call right. a bill. They'd be like, "Let's have a bill just and name it after." Her. You could do that, right? It's like uh, I mean, you know, I, I think that many cases this they wouldn't want the attention, but you could find somebody that's like, "Hey." I was I was raped, you know, or I, you know, I had this, I was underage and this happened to me. And you can name a bill after that, right? And say, we're just going to protect this one type of instance. Okay. Don't you, are you with us on that or no? And, and if they, if for whatever reason, there are 10 normal Republicans that day, then great. Then you made an incremental progress. And if they say no, then you run campaign ads, you know, in all of these swing states saying that the Republicans opposed a law that would have protected a 12 year old, right? I, 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 right. I don't. I don't. Uh, to me, it's like a no-brainer, and and the Democrats are doing the opposite. And I understand that you know you, there are other considerations, but but it is frustrating. <laughs> I have to admit, there are never any other considerations for Republicans. And I was sort of hoping that the hearings would would um, get, boost them, right? Because um, what we're seeing unfold, besides, it's absolutely. Astonishing! I'm just breathtaking. The the venality, the criminality of what's being uncovered. Uh, we're also seeing that you know the, the other side. Many many people on the other side were were involved deeply in this effort. So you know maybe we we should be playing hardball with with those people who asked for pardons. Um, so right, it just seems. I mean, you would think so. And Ron, you know, Ron Johnson, prime example. Stuff comes out this week. That's a huge Senate race. Yeah. So about the hearing, I'm just, I'm curious because there has been so much information, especially yesterday. Yeah. Uh, There was something very poignant and sad about uh, yesterday's testimony and and the whole hearing. Um, What, stood out to you because there was so much nuance uh, to what there were so many small moments that might have been missed um, and I think as typically happens people focus on the the plate being thrown against the wall and the you know lurching for the steering wheel um, what did what were your some of your takeaways yeah <clears throat> I mean for starters uh, I think that it's unclear to me why Mark Meadows isn't hasn't been indicted yet. I I, I just Mark Meadows ha, is is refusing a subpoena. I, I thought the testimony about him, the chief of staff, was this was his assistant. So you know, obviously everybody's going to focus on the presidential stuff. But but I, she testified. It was an astonishing testimony about her boss. That that this violence, this attack on the Capitol was happening, and he seemed to be just not care. You know, d- d- completely detached. Um, I, I thought that was, uh, you know, an astonishing behind the scenes look at what was happening as the Capitol was being overrun. Um, uh, another thing that stands out is the guns, obviously. I just, uh, yeah. you know, the, the get rid of the magnometer. This was something, some of the things that she testified to were secondhand. This was firsthand, mm-hmm. you know, testimony. Yep. Um, uh, they're not coming from me. You know, they're not coming from me. So who cares? Um, let them through. Uh, and I think that that is also particularly relevant because it speaks to the inaction then for the following hours. I, I, you know, it shows, yeah. um, you know, premeditation, I, you know, to a certain degree, right? It's like, I know that this is a violent group or potentially violent group. And for hours, I'm going to do nothing as they come and find my, my even my vice president. 
Um, so to me, the and and just Cassidy herself, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just up, you know, of all the grown-ups in Washington, not that I don't I don't want to diminish her or whatever, but you know, she was twenty four. Mm-hmm. She was twenty four. Yeah. She had no business being in that position in the first place. And we have all these adults who, who take an oath to the public and to the Constitution who are doing nothing, but who are complicit. And, and, and they've left this 24-year-old, or now 26, to, 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 to have to take this, all this heat. I, I mean, I, you know, it just, to me, it just revealed, once again, just how astonishingly cowardly all the men around Donald Trump were. And misogynistic. Like, seriously, yeah. you don't... Who was it? Uh, the ser- head of Secret Service, or no, it was Ornato, saying, yeah. "Make sh- Cassidy, make sure he doesn't go." What? What is she going to do? Yeah. Like lock the door? I mean, this is who we're left with. A person after person, right? Think about that. Yeah. Think about if she hadn't been there, and it's just—it's the same kind of narrative that if you if you think about one thing changing if donald had gotten to go to the capitol um and the reason i think sort of speculation in some ways is useless but on the other hand it is very important for people to grasp just how close we came and how much worse it could have been were not for a 24 year old woman uh surrounded by men twice her age yeah who, 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 again, were in positions of responsibility, like responsibility to the country and public service, not just to one man. I and mean, that's the whole thing that just gets lost in all this. Uh, now, I mean, where is his national security? All these people, there are all these like people who say that they went in because we needed good ones in there. I knew that he was a little uh, unstable, yeah. but I needed to. Where are all those people? Where, where is right. everybody? Like, they're all, everyone is out. Everyone is MIA. Uh, it's just. And I, that, that uh, is, yeah, but I think that's a good, good point. Uh, to to focus on because nobody said anything afterwards, even though even after they year. found out. I, and it's just like, and and again, a lot of people who voted not to convict knew all of this as well. So right. it's it's fascinating in an exhausting way, I have to say. Um, yeah. Although I do, do you get the sense that the hearings are going? Whether they move the needle or not, I guess we can't tell. But uh, right now, but do you think that they are accomplishing anything um, groundbreaking and necessary? Well, I think that the, obviously there's a, it, was a, it was historically necessary to do it. So I, I, that was the minimum, and they're achieving that. And I think they've done a nice job. Um, you know, it could have been a nothing burger, and it hasn't been. So, um, right. so, so that so that's something. Uh, after that, it's going to be up to DOJ. I, I have a lot of hope that a former president's going to get indicted, but I, but Rudy Eastman, Clark Meadows, um, it'd be nice to see what somebody have some accountability. And I, you know, I was talking to yeah. Bill Crystal about this, and, and he's like, it did make a difference actually that that Nick, some people around Nixon went to jail, right? Because you know, it didn't obviously make mm-hmm. everybody perfect and uh, you know ethical forever. That there was a period of time in you know in Washington, he said, "I'd be in rooms and and people would be like, eh, I don't want to be like, you know, who so and so, you know, who right. got, who who's you know who's in the I don't want to be like Liddy, who's in the clinks yep. for a couple of years, right?" And and so yep. I, there, there's some and an, an accountability element to that. I think that the committee's made a really strong case. You know, those those gentlemen that I named in particular, 
you know, sh- should face some legal action. And and I and I I reject the notion. I think people like judge it politically on like, will this save the house for the Democrats? No, right? That's not no. the point. Okay, that's not the point in the first place. But you can also have a political impact without having the ultimate impact, right? It couldn't mm-hmm. help on the margins. Yeah. I think that, you know, Sarah Longwell, my colleague at the Bulwark, does these focus groups. You know, she said that in the focus groups of Republican voters, there's been a little bit more, uh, you know, towards Trump than usual over the last two weeks, right? I mean, they're still with him, but, you know, she's seen a noticeable difference. And and that's not nothing, right? Uh, you know, yeah. so so even, even a change on the margins, um, uh, I, I think is a nice ancillary benefit of these hearings if it's not the point. I I think that's really important. Um, and it's educating people in a way they would not have been educated. I think, right. so. you know, there's just things about how the government works that people don't know because we don't teach civics anymore. So how right. how, how good that... Um, I just looked at the clock and I have taken up so much of your time, but <laughs> I seriously could talk to you forever. Um, it's been so great to meet you and to hear your sure. take. Um you know, I've I've seen your commentary. I've I've read your articles. I cannot wait to read your new book, Why We Did It. Uh, which, if I'm, it's on it's on the bestseller list in Amazon or not quite yet. Yeah, on we're on. I think I don't know. We're on top twenty-five on Amazon. I think somebody texted me earlier, so doing That's pretty good. Phenomenal. We'll see. List next week, and um, and yeah, no, the same. It's so cool that we get to meet. I'd love to have whatever a glass of rosé with you or something next time I'm through town. And I love rosé. Um, yeah, uh, we'll figure it out. All right, thank you so much, Tim Miller. This was fantastic, and uh, hopefully we'll have you on again. All right, sounds great. Sorry, I didn't wear my pearls. Next time. Next time. All right, cool. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much to my guest, Tim Miller. Uh, That was incredible. Um, His insights are really helpful. Uh, I have so many blind spots when it comes to trying to understand the other side that it's it's always good to have somebody who's uh, come over to our side. but share their understanding of how things work and how things have, have, have evolved or devolved the way they have. And thank you, of course, to all of you for listening. Um, just a reminder that anytime there is a January 6th Select Committee hearing, we will be live streaming uh, with in real-time commentary and analysis afterwards and a little bit before. So uh, we'll keep you posted about those. Also on Tuesday, we'll have our strategy session up and running again. That's 7 o'clock Eastern, uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and that's at youtube.com slash Politicon. And of course, next Thursday, uh, we will have our regular show. Uh, also at youtube.com slash Politicon, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. And uh, don't forget, while you're at YouTube, um, click on the bell, and that way you will be sure to find out anytime a new episode drops or a new video drops. And like Politicon, uh, sorry, follow Politicon, like the episode, and of course, you can listen um, in podcast form on Apple or anywhere else you listen And uh, that's it for tonight. Thank you again so much for being here. We'll see you next Tuesday. In the meantime, be safe and take care.